L Fanboy, Episode 9. What's going on? This is Mario Francisco Robles, your host of the El Fanboy Podcast. Today we've got our ninth episode. There's all kinds of shit to talk about, and I'm very energized. In the middle of fucking spring break over here, don't have to wake up early to take my daughter to school. My wife is home from work. She's a school teacher, so we have a nice little 10-day break I'm feeling rested, I'm feeling rejuvenated, and I've been watching and playing and doing a bunch of shit lately, so there's plenty to talk about. But right now, the very first thing at the top of my mind is that Thor Ragnarok trailer that we got a couple days ago. Holy shit, does that movie look good. I've been telling people this for like a year, just about. You know, a lot of people want to sleep on this because it's a Thor movie, and let's be, let's be real. The first two Thor movies are not exactly classics, especially the second one. And when it comes to the Avengers team-up movies, Thor is usually the least interesting aspect of those movies. Even fucking Hawkeye outshined him in uh, Age of Ultron. You know, Thor is just kind of a bland character. There's not much to him. You know, he's got the red cape and the hammer, and he speaks in that Shakespearean prose. And aside from being a good whipping boy for... Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark to sort of make into a punchline, Thor is really just not that interesting. And yet, with all the details that come out from Thor Ragnarok, everything that's been coming out for the last year or so, I just get more and more excited. And finally getting to see some of this in action, seeing it come to fruition, this feeling I've had about what the tone is going to be like and how it's going to look and how it's going to feel and how it's going to play tonally speaking. I, I almost feel vindicated already and the movie hasn't come out. But I feel like I've been one of those people who's been like telling people, hey guys, do not sleep on Thor Ragnarok. This shit is going to surprise you. So just a couple things. I mean, first of all, I want to give credit to uh, the Splash Reports editor-in-chief, Mr. Kelvin Chavez. He made a He had a scoop that was seemingly confirmed by this. It really is looking more and more like Kate Blanchett's Hella is in fact going to be the stand-in for death in the uh, the MCU's version of this Infinity War storyline. You know, because yes, Hella is the goddess of death, but in the books there there's a there's a separate character called Death that factors into the Infinity Gauntlet, Infinity War, whatever storyline. And it really is looking like Kelvin's source was absolutely right, that it looks like Hela will be the death, so to speak, in the Avengers Infinity War storyline, which means that, I mean, it's kind of a spoiler if you think of it that way, because it means that Thor is probably not going to be vanquishing her in Thor Ragnarok. It means she's going to factor in to the Infinity War some way. So think on that a little bit. And think on the fact that she looks pretty fucking badass. I'm not usually one of these people who really gives a crap about Kate Blanchett. Like, I kind of put her in a similar category to, like, Naomi Watts. And if you want to go back a little further, like, Nicole Kidman when she was, like, the big deal. I just, you know, I have nothing against them. I think these are fine actresses. But, like, hearing their name attached to something doesn't really give me a feeling one way or the other. It's like, all right, I'm kind of neutral on it. 
But in this trailer, holy shit, she looks like she's she's got a very interesting villain on her hands. We've read comments in the past about how her Hela is going to sort of, um, you know, maybe put a dent in the idea that the MCU's villains are weak. You know, that, that's been one of the recurring critiques for a very long time, that the MCU has very few real great standout villains, that usually they're just sort of generic and, you know, they're not taken seriously. You don't actually fear them and you don't really give a shit whether or not you ever see them again outside of, let's say, Loki. Um, and although, and I would I also argue that Red Skull, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that Hugo Weaving wouldn't want to return, but, uh, you know, Red Skull, I thought was a pretty dynamic villain as well, but either way, it looks like Hela is going to be a pretty sick villain and, and we're not going to be losing her just yet. Um, also, you know, just in general, I loved how the trailer, like almost, it was almost sort of meta if you think about it, in terms of how they wanted to strip down everything we thought we knew about Thor. It's almost like the producers know that people are kind of like, eh, you know, that the Thor movies are kind of like um, the ones that inspired the least amount of geek boners, if you know what I mean. That people just tend to watch Thor movies out of a sense of obligation, out of a sense of, all right, well, I, you know, I'm a fan of these Marvel movies and I want to know what's going on in the cosmos uh, so whenever there's a Thor movie, I'll check it out just so I know what the hell's going on with him and Loki. But, you know, you almost get the sense that, like, they wanted us to rethink everything we know about Thor. You know, right off the bat, he throws Molnir and fucking Hela catches it easily and destroys it with her bare hand. So right there, his main most iconic thing, they even open with, like, the iconic shot of Thor throwing the hammer. We've seen that image like 39 times so far in the MCU. You know, between his two movies, between the two Avengers movies, it's become one of the main visuals that is associated with the MCU. Thor with his red cape and his mullet. I know it's not a mullet, but listen. <laughs> Thor with his red cape and his mullet launching Mjolnir across the, across the field at an enemy. And um, right off the bat, they open with that but she catches it and destroys it right off the bat. That just tells the audience, this is not the Thor situation that you're used to. This is not the Thor that you can usually just kind of ignore and move on from. So she destroys Mjolnir. As we go along, we see that she destroys Asgard. I didn't see that coming. Remember, I'm not a comic book dude. So maybe you guys who are familiar with the Ragnarok storyline, who are familiar with the comic book mythology in general, Maybe you guys were expecting to see that. I did not. I, I assumed at some point she would pop up on Asgard and, you know, and then maybe there'd be a battle. But she fucking destroyed it. She obliterated seemingly that whole realm. That whole planet is gone. So that was very shocking. And once again, it's them like, you know, it's the storytellers basically saying, you know, all the things that you've come to know and, and, and understand about Thor, be ready to rethink all of that. Hang on, let me just take a sip of my cafecito. Oh, that's good. All right, so let's see what else. So Asgard's destroyed. Of course, obviously, there's the physical remake. Sorry, the physical redo where they cut his hair. So, you know, we, we, when we see him later on, he doesn't have the red cape and he doesn't have the hair. You know, and it's funny because when it comes to like Iron Man, there's always like a big deal made about the suits. Is it the Mach 1, the Mach 2, the Mach 3? Oh, he's debuting a new suit. 
But let's be fucking honest here. Iron Man always looks the same. Yeah, all right, so they tweak the colors once in a while, but he looks essentially the same. Same thing with Captain America. Uh, I would say the biggest, boldest change was the one that they did for the actual Avengers movie when they went from the very practical World War II suit to that very colorful uh, star, you know, star-spangled suit for the first Avengers, which they quickly sort of got out of because they realized maybe that was a little too much. And then he's he has since gone back to that more sort of practical look. But even him, if you just kind of look at him and all of his suits across time, you know, across the franchise so far, he doesn't really change that much, Captain America. You know, so when it comes to him, when it comes to Iron Man... There's really just these tiny little nips and tweaks and tucks. This, for Thor, is a total 180. You know, there's no red cape. There's no Mjolnir in his hand. And now he's got the short buzz cut. Like, they are literally remaking the character right in front of us. And that is so exciting for me. Because I've always seen the potential for Thor to be really cool. And now with this movie, I might actually give a fuck about this character. So I'm really excited about this. Um, you know, and, and like they make him look very vulnerable. And at times he looks sort of outmatched. He looks like he's out of his element. He get, They shoot that net at him and it actually like takes him down. You know, because up until now also he's been depicted as this like demigod who's pretty much fucking invulnerable. So they're, you know, they're actually making him look more human. They're putting him in a situation where you're not sure how he's going to get out of this. You know, and then they, they had that glimpse of Heimdall, who's fucking looking like Bishop, by the way, from Days of Future Past. But there's that shot of Heimdall, uh, you know, Idris Elba, in the woods with the fucking dreadlocks and the cape, and you know, he looks like he's on the run. Like, everything has just been rethought, and I love that. And there's even little things, too, like, you know, Taika Waititi, who isn't really thought of as a you know, comic book guy. He comes from the indie world. And in general, you know, you wouldn't think of him as someone who has like a huge desire to adapt the books. But even the trailer had like some great, great nods to the graphic novels. You know, obviously, there's the most obvious one that jumps out with uh, Hulk wearing his Planet Hulk stuff, um, you know, very close to it. You know, there's the stuff where Thor really gets to wear, like, the legit Thor helmet, finally, you know? Um, but then there's, like, the subtle things, too. Like, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but in that shot of Carl uh, Urban, where he's, you know, as, as Scourge, and he's firing those machine guns or whatever, that's, like, a direct recreation of how Scourge looks in the cover of, uh, of Thor 362, the comic book. So it, it goes to show me that Waititi knows his stuff and he's taking it seriously. He doesn't, you know, he's sort of a subversive filmmaker. Uh, and he seems like a real genuine artist, not just like a director for hire. But he does have some reverence for this. And he wants to make sure that there's something there for everyone. That the hardcore film, you know, the, the hardcore comic book geeks are going to see stuff that's going to make them cream their pants. But even outsiders are going to have something to sink their teeth into. You know, I just, I, I said this a few weeks ago, if you've been listening for a while, that he could be the kind of director that Marvel needs to, to hire more often. You know, they don't need big name guys. They don't need, you know, and they don't even want, really, if you really pay attention to the people they cast, they don't really want, like, auteurs or artists. They don't really want artists, you know, directors who are going to, like, make it their own. You know, they want directors who are going to get them from point A to point B because Marvel 
know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is all about world building. And, you know, yes, this movie's coming out, but this movie has to help feed in to what else is going on out there. So they don't really want someone who's going to take a, a great, huge departure. But I have said that a guy like Waititi seems like the type of director who can just take their material and elevate it just by putting it, just by kind of spinning it on its head a little bit, just by filming it a certain way, giving it a certain color palette, directing the actors to do things that are a little more spontaneous. You know, there are absolute ways to elevate a script and to, and to still add your personality into it without completely changing what the project is or is trying to be. So if Marvel can continue to find guys like Waititi, and by the way, I know this is like crazy because the movie doesn't come out till November, so who knows, maybe it fucking sucks. I really don't think it's gonna. But my point is, if they're able to find more directors like him who can take what's on the page and add his own creative energy to it, I think we're in for a fucking treat. Um, so I'm just, I'm, I'm very pumped. I'm trying to think of if there's anything else before we move on from, oh yeah, you know what? I, I'm very curious where they're going with Loki, if you think about it. Because um, in the few glimpses that we see of him, he almost looks like a good guy. I want you to go back and rewatch it, you know? it's And it's kind of a departure, because if you think about where we left him in that Thor the Dark World, you know, he's impersonating Odin, and he seems to have gone full villain again. <clears throat> you know, after starting off as, like, anti-hero, then villain then back to anti-hero, he seemed to go back to villain at the end of Thor The Dark World. But if you look at this Thor Ragnarok trailer, you know, first of all, he has that kind of hero shot where the daggers are flying into his hands, and it looks like he's about to have a battle on Asgard to defend his home world against Hela's forces. And, you know, it's got like the slow-mo, and he's got this very solemn look on his face, and he looks like he's, you know, almost. it looked like a hero shot. It looked like, you know, a hero shot. And then if you pay attention also in that closing scene when, when, we, uh, when Thor and Hulk are about to throw down on Sakaar, uh, there's a shot of Grandmaster sitting on a couch watching sort of perplexed about what's going on. Loki is sitting next to him. I don't know if you guys noticed that. Loki is on the opposite end of the couch. It's a very, like, ridiculously long, wide couch. But he's sitting on the other end of it. And his face, like, he doesn't look to be happy about what's going on. He looks concerned. And I'm just wondering if Loki is going to end up, you know, being good by when, when all is said and done here. Because everything in that trailer so far seems to indicate that this is not going to be fucking villainous, uh, you know, evil, bad guy Loki. This is going to be a Loki who perhaps has lost his home and now wants to, like, you know, rekindle a relationship with his brother Thor, his half-brother, and maybe try to rectify what happened. You know, maybe it's his fault that Asgard was vulnerable to, to Hela's attacks. Maybe, you know, maybe he has some, he has some sort of piper to pay because he's, you know, he's, he, he was impersonating Odin. And now because of whatever he did there, uh, you know, Asgard is gone. So I just, I have a feeling that Loki's subplot is going to be very interesting. Uh, and overall, I just, I cannot be more excited for Thor. Um, if we're talking about the hypometer, which I mentioned uh, for the Spider-Man Homecoming episode, my hypometer, I mean, it was already at an eight. Now it's at a nine. That's it. Which is still good. I don't, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to give anything a ten. 
because I know I gave Spider-Man Homecoming a 10, but that was because it actually like it, it you know, it actually got me excited about the movie, that trailer. In general, I was going to see Spider-Man Homecoming just out of like, I like Spider-Man, I like Marvel, I will see it almost out of a sense of obligation. Like, well, I obviously I have to see it. But then the trailer came out and now I'm like, I can't wait to see it. This one, I already was hyped for it. So this just kind of like, just notched that up a bit. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, man, Thor Ragnarok looks badass. It's got so, you know, it, it asks a lot of questions. It looks so different, so fresh. Like it almost, it looks like a soft reboot for the Thor franchise, which by the way, makes me wonder, you know, Chris Hemsworth's contract has to be fulfilled by now, or if it hasn't yet, it's about to be. So it makes you wonder if he's going to be sticking around because you've kind of gotten the sense, you know, Robert Downey Jr. has, has, you know, his, his days are numbered. There was even a report I saw last week about how, uh, Avengers Infinity War two or whatever they're going to call that, you know, the, uh, the fourth Avengers movie may be his last ride as Tony Stark. Um, you know, and there's even the, uh, the sense that Chris Evans at some point is going to sort of move on to something else. Uh, but what's going on with Hemsworth? You know, the, considering the fact that they're essentially like relaunching Thor and making us rethink the character as we know him, I would not be surprised if he has signed some sort of extension. And I guess it makes sense, too. I mean, uh, you know, Evans has a pretty interesting career beyond Marvel. Robert Downey Jr., obviously, you know, he's a big bankable name. And, I mean, you know, I, I, I've argued that he's not necessarily bankable when he's not Tony Stark. But in general, you know, he doesn't, quote-unquote, need Marvel to continue his career. He can ride off into the sunset. Hemsworth hasn't necessarily had a lot of success beyond Marvel. So in terms of, like, whose career would benefit out of, out of like, the core guys, um, I, I think, you know, Hemsworth probably could, should, and will stick around. Or we may have Marvel, you know, Thor movies coming out starring him uh, for a while, especially if they can maybe get Waititi to stick around, too, because it seemed like they had a lot of fun putting this movie together. But okay, enough of that. I think I've exhausted my Thor Ragnarok feelings. So now let's go ahead and talk about the box office, shall we? I kind of skipped the box office last week. I wasn't sure if anyone has been into that feature. I know it goes back to the other show. Um, and in general, for me, box office is a very fascinating thing. I love analyzing it. I love looking at budgets. I love looking at track records. I love looking at similar movies and making comparisons. But when it comes to like Twitter feedback from you guys and Facebook feedback from you guys, I don't tend to get, you know, you guys don't really tend to engage me about box office. So I skipped it last week because I thought, all right, maybe they just don't give a fuck. But it actually came up on the Twitter that you guys were, you know, wanted to discuss box office. Namely, you know, last week there was an interesting story. Last week was the whole aftermath of um, Ghost in the Shell's world premiere. Now, you know, I know that we are now a week removed from the fact that Ghost in the Shell has come out and it was not particularly good in terms of the numbers, but, um, you know, I'm going to follow up. I, I'm going to give you sort of my, what I think about all that, uh, wrapped up in what happened this week, since I don't want to retread last week's news. So this week, 
Uh, what did it do? Let me just pull that up for you. I want to give you the actual weekend actuals now that those have been released on this glorious Tuesday morning. So the weekend actuals for Ghost in the Shell, it came in in fifth place after opening in third place last week. Um, it made 7300400 dollars Uh, it dropped around 61%. And this is a movie that now has a domestic cum of 31.5 million bucks. Remember, this is a movie that cost $110 million. And there are reports that that's actually Paramount trying to hide some of the cost. It may have cost closer to $180 million. So that is a big fucking deal, folks. Um, in fact, it looks like Ghost in the Shell may end up costing Paramount money. Like, not just, you know, barely breaking even. Like, Paramount will be losing money on this, similar to how Warner Brothers lost money on uh, Live By Night, which was, like I think, like 65 mil they had, you know, they had projected. Ghost in the Shell is going to lose between 60 to $100 million for Paramount. Um especially if it, it actually costs 180 and then there's all the marketing. Um, you know, listen, I, you know what, I, okay, listen, before I get into why I think this is happening, let me also just let you know too, another one of the subplots when it comes to Ghost in the Shell is people thought it might be saved by international, by the foreign markets, uh, since it is, a, you know, it began its life as an as a anime and it has that sort of Asian bent uh, it might, you know, it might do really well overseas. Well, I mean, listen, it opened in Japan this weekend and it didn't even open in first. Uh, you know, it had a modest open. It was, it didn't tank, but it wasn't amazing either. It made 2.5 million bucks, which I know I mean, by, by Hollywood standards, that's like chump change. But, but according to, you know, analysts for Japan, that's actually pretty good. Uh, they're not known for, for showing up to big Hollywood blockbusters out there. So 2.5 mil is apparently considered a decent opening. But when you factor that in now, when you factor the fact that it made in it made 2.5 mil and that its worldwide cum is only at 124 million, I, I think we can, you know, finally just say that this thing is not gonna be saved by foreign by foreign box office, like, like a lot of other films have. Um, and so now let's get to why I think this is happening. I don't think it has to do with the whitewashing controversy. I don't think it has to do with, with like Scarlett Johansson's box office appeal. I think it really comes down to marketing. I really do. Um, every trailer I saw, every TV spot I saw, it it all it looked like like it was a world it looked like a film that was made only for fans of the Japanese anime. You know, it didn't seem like it was really trying to appeal to cross over into the mainstream. And obviously they were. Paramount, I think, wanted this to be a big deal and maybe make sequels or some shit. I don't even know. But you know, you can tell like they wanted to take the anime and expand upon it, but Really, I, I didn't even know what the movie was about for, like, most of the trailers. Like, if you were to ask me, gun to my head right now, what Ghost in the Shell is about, and I've seen all the main trailers, 
I couldn't really tell you with any degree of certainty what the movie's about. So, you know, unlike her other, you know, her last sort of solo action venture, she did the movie Lucy, which had a very clear premise. Um, I, Ghost in the Shell for me just looked like, you know, they were hoping that people would just be, you know, sucked in by the visuals. You know, here's badass Scarlett Johansson, sort of naked, running around with a gun in a futuristic sort of Tokyo type setting. It looks kind of like Blade Runner, kind of like Lucy, and she's kind of naked. What do you say, folks? See this movie. And to me, like, I don't think that sort of approach works. You know, especially since we live in a, in a not, not a society, that makes it sound way too deep. But especially since, since we live in a sort of world now where just having a known star on the poster doesn't get you a box office, you know, doesn't get you box office gold anymore. You know, people nowadays, they need a real hook. If they're going to come out to fucking movie theaters that are charging them $18 for tickets like they are around me nowadays, they have to have a real hook. There needs to be something in that trailer that goes, you know what? I need to spend that money. I need to make that time. I, I need to, you know, this movie's going to be a destination for me. It's going to be a worthwhile venture. And Ghost in the Shell for me just didn't do that. Um, then when you factor in the fact that it, the reviews were very tepid, it was hit or miss, um, I, yeah, I think that's the main reason. I think it just, you know, I haven't seen it yet, so I can't judge the movie. It's, I'm probably not going to see it, by the way. I don't care. But, um, yeah, I, I just think that it's a combination of the fact that it was very sort of insular. It seemed to only want to appeal to people who already know the property, already love the property, and want to see it now done in live action. It didn't really seem like, hey, everyone, come along with us for this ride. It seemed like this is a movie made especially for Ghost in the Shell fans. And then on top of that, they didn't make clear what makes that story special. So I think that's ultimately the main thing. I don't think it has to do with the whitewashing controversy. I don't think you can slam Scarlett Johansson for this. This wasn't on her. She did her thing. She did her best. But this movie was marketed shit. It was not marketed well at all. Um, but okay, so let's look at the overall box office landscape because there is more to the world than just Ghost in the Shell. So look, The Boss Baby came out. Uh, you know, and it, I mean, not that it came out, it's, it stayed at number one. It came out last week, it debuted at number one, and it stayed at number one. And it continues to be sort of neck and neck with Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast continues to sort of, you know, uh, you know, tease us that it might come back to number one because the race is so close. Um, you know, the movie's been out for four weeks now. And just to kind of give you an idea, you know, Boss Baby made 26 mil for the top spot. Beauty and the Beast made almost 24 mil. So it's breathing down the boss baby's neck. So once again, Disney's got another bona fide hit with Beauty and the Beast there at number two. Then you got Smurfs the Lost Village. That was another interesting, uh, an interesting one there. Because from what I understand, and maybe this is also it comes down to weird marketing or or a sort of non-committal approach here from Sony. But Smurfs The Lost Village, as far as I understand it, is not Smurfs 3. In other words, it's not really a follow-up to the other Smurfs movies that have come out in the last few years. To the best of my knowledge, Smurfs The Lost Village is a reboot. 
You know, first of all, it's not the animated live-action hybrid that had Hank Azaria as Gargamel in the first two movies. This is, you know, there's a Gargamel in this that's animated. Like, it, it's a different thing. They were trying, you know, they, they were trying to pull, like, a Peanuts sort of thing. You know, the Peanuts movie that came out last year. Where, like, here is just an animated, straight-up, big-screen adaptation of the old cartoon. Um, so... You know, when you factor that in, I think like people were confused by what this movie was supposed to be because I don't know that it was necessarily marketed as a fresh start. It was just here's another Smurf story, and uh, you can decide whether or not this is related to the other two movies. I, I really don't know what they were going for. Either way, it opens a thirteen million bucks. That's not good, especially for for an animated film that's that's based on an established IP like Smurfs. 13 mil opening in third place. That is not good. Then there's Going in Style, which opened up to just just south of $12 million. Now, that's not bad. You know, the movie only cost $25 million to make. And the people it's, tar- it's marketed for, uh, these people tend to come to the movies kind of like more long term. You know, it, it's marketed towards the older crowd towards seniors, towards older, you know, towards the older demographics. And historically speaking, those kind of movies are not front-loaded because we're dealing with older people who kind of like, they want to read the reviews. They want to hear what their friends and family thought of it. So this thing could have some serious legs. Um, you know, and right now it's at a worldwide cum of 16.7. So it's definitely going to make back its 25 mil. And I would not be surprised to see going in style sort of, you know, hanging on for, for a while. It's going to be in that top 10, I would say, for at least a few more weeks. Um, you know, it makes me think of that, like, uh, Last Vegas that came out, which I think did pretty well on its own. You know, and with the cast like that, Morgan Freeman, Michael Caine, Alan Arkin, it's directed by Zach Braff. Um, you know, I, I think going in style is going to do just just fine there for Warner Brothers, for, for New Line Cinemas, I should say, which is a.k.a. Warner Brothers. Um, and by the way, I, you know, that movie's directed by Zach Braff. He's one of those people I'm always surprised didn't do more. And listen, I know he's still young. He could still hang in there and he's, he's, you know, he's got some great stuff notched on his belt. You know, Scrubs was a very good TV show there for a while. Uh, that, you know, Garden State was an indie darling that a lot of people still hold in high regard. Sorry, one more sip of cafecito. But Zach Braff is one of those guys who I kind of expected more from. Um, I think he's got a very unique vision. I think he's a funny guy. I think he's a creative guy. And I kind of expected him to go on to do like really big things with his career post Scrubs. And the fact that he's the the, the, the director of this, you know, modest little hit uh, go, going in style. I don't know. I just, I expected more from Brap. You know, this is kind of funny. Like if you would have asked me, 10 years ago, or whenever Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies were coming to a close, who should play Peter Parker? I would have loved Zach Braff. I know you guys probably might think I'm crazy, especially nowadays since he's like sort of a has-been. But when he was at the height of his Scrubs, uh, his Scrubs run, I always kind of thought of him as like, he'd be a great Peter Parker. Because Peter Parker's supposed to not be the most good-looking guy. He's supposed to be sort of awkward and geeky and, and have that real wit 
And for me, Zach Braff, I thought, could have pulled that off 10 years ago. But anyway, this is kind of a tangent. Who gives a shit? That didn't happen. It's not going to happen. Now he's directing going in style. So sorry about that, Mr. Braff. Um, and if we may dip beyond the top five, just because, you know, I'm a fucking Power Rangers nerd. Uh, Power Rangers, the $100 million movie, is uh, only at $117 million worldwide after, I think, three weeks now. That's that's not looking so hot. I got to be honest here. I, I'm wondering now if Lionsgate is going to pull the plug on any sequels. Because that's not, I mean, that's really, that's nothing special. Now, let's see. Let's open up Foreign. Now, let's see how it's doing in, like, the big guns. Okay, it, does, it doesn't look like it's open in China yet. So China could potentially, you know, save it. Um... But yeah, for now, like the international, oh, you know, <clears throat> the international is at 42 million bucks. That's, you know, it's, it's decent, but I don't know. I, I have, a, I have a bad feeling about what's going to go on here with, uh, with the Power Rangers. I know they had a lot of hopes for this. They wanted to make sequels. They teased the sequel. And by my, you know, I think it was a, I think it was a good movie. I, I did enjoy it. Um, you know, I've got the video review up for it. We're on the uh, El Fanboy YouTube page. And I put the uh, written one up on the Splash Report. But, uh, yeah, it's, I, I, I have a bad feeling. All right, Power Rangers fans? I, I, I think the Power, Ranger may, uh, the Power Rangers are not going to continue. And that makes me very sad. Um, <clears throat> but, okay, we're going to move on. Uh, just a real quick sort of update. Uh, I'm not sure if you all know this. Or noticed, but a few days ago, uh, Kelvin and I reached a deal. Kelvin, the editor-in-chief of the Splash Report, founder of Latino Review, my longtime ally in this industry, we reached a deal. Uh, you know, we spoke to Austin Chavez, the owner of the Splash Report, and the, uh, the El Fanboy podcast is now going to officially be, uh, you know, available to you via SplashReport.com. So... Now, aside from being able to get updates from me at lfanboy.com, uh, you can go to splashreport.com and you can have El Fanboy there as part of everything else. Their wonderful editorials and their uh, beautiful uh, daily news updates. Since I don't really do all that on my personal site, now you guys can go to Splash Report and I'll be posting these podcasts there. So that's pretty exciting. And I want to just thank Austin and Kelvin Chavez for agreeing to let Splash Report be one of uh, El Fanboy's homes. Um, it means a lot to me. And uh, listen, you know, I'm just trying to spread the uh, spread the name out there. El Fanboy is, is growing. Uh, I actually just reached out to someone who would be a whale of a guest. I've never done what I did earlier today. I, I, I really kind of just said, fuck it. I bypassed a publicist and I went straight for someone who is huge. I have their direct contact info. We've spoken before. They've been very forthcoming with uh, lots of information about other like stories I've broken and things. And I, now I'm trying to get them to appear on this very show. And I'm hoping that the fact that now I'm, I'm associated with Splash Report will help. So I'll keep you guys up to date on that. That's just a bit of a teaser. But I reached out to someone who is, you know, a huge, huge Hollywood presence right now. Someone very important to the uh, to the superhero landscape, if you know what I mean. 
So we'll see. We'll see how they respond. But um, all right. But back to the news. So there's been a lot of DC stuff going on. A lot of DC stuff going on since we last spoke. So where to begin? Where to begin? Where to begin? We're going to start with Dwayne Johnson, my boy, The Rock. Um, so you know, he, he made some comments uh, that got a lot of people talking. It, it, it's all with relation to DC, their world building, his Black Adam movie, the status of Shazam, and kind of how they're going with all that. So he, here's what he said. Here's what he told MTV. Dwayne Johnson said, We've had great discussions with Jeff Johns over at DC. This is a really fun, cool time for DC right now because they're world building. We're seeing that with Wonder Woman and Aquaman. We have a few surprises down the line. So what we decided to do was to create a scenario where Black Adam has his standalone movie and Captain Marvel Shazam has his standalone movie. We're building our world that way, and then we can come together at some point. So that's what he said. Uh, you know, a couple notable things there is that, you know, in the past, there was a time where he was quoted as saying he wasn't sure if Shazam, this is back when Shazam was the only movie he was attached to, would be linked to the DCEU. But now, you know, with this, with this quote, it firmly cements the idea that Black Adam slash Shazam will be part of the DCEU. Then there's that little line there about we have a few surprises down the line. Now, what's interesting about that is that there's a, there's a rumor that's spreading around. It's, you know, it's, it's circulating the web right now thanks to uh, an anonymous unnamed source on Reddit. Uh, and it, you know, this may be what one of those surprises is. So take this with a grain of salt. But... There's uh, some considerable thought going into the idea that Black Adam will be introduced in Man of Steel 2. Um, yeah, someone, you know, a source who supposedly is close to the situation says that Black Adam may be a big part of Man of Steel 2, possibly the main villain of Man of Steel 2. Now, this seems to work a little bit, too, with some stuff that took place on social media. A few months back, I don't know if you remember this, but Henry Cavill and Dwayne Johnson, who are both represented by the same manager, uh, they were you know they, they they posted some stuff on Instagram and Twitter of the two of them working together with some sort of hashtag related to DC, and right from that, people started talking about the fact that maybe there's a plan to sort of merge what they're working on. You know, we know that Henry Cavill supposedly has Man of Steel two on the horizon for him. But now we've got, you know, we also know that uh, Dwayne Johnson's been working on his Black Adam movie. Maybe these things are not different things. Maybe they're the same thing. Maybe Man of Steel 2 will reveal, you know, will have Black Adam in it. And then that will lead to a Black Adam movie. I can see that happening. I would like that happening. I would like that to happen. Because let's be honest, you know, Shazam, Captain Marvel is kind of a vanilla character. You know, it could be done well, but I feel like right now DCEU needs to get its core things right. And a superhero movie is only as good as its villain. Having Dwayne Johnson as Black Adam in Man of Steel 2 would give Man of Steel 2 something, a real X factor there. Um, so I kind of hope it's true. Listen, you know, there, there, people have tried to debunk it. There have been denials about it. So, you know, you have to take the whole thing with a grain of salt. 
But I would not be surprised at all if it ends up coming to pass that Dwayne Johnson's Black Adam pops up in Man of Steel 2. We shall see what happens there. Um, and, you know, when it comes to Shazam, by the way, there's also part, you know, part of the rumors that Shazam might not be happening at all. Uh, I, I don't know if I, if I buy that, but I kind of hope it doesn't, honestly. Uh, also, with regard to Man of Steel 2, there's this talk that Matthew Vaughn is still in talks. That Matthew Vaughn is still sort of in the conversation to take you know, to, to become the director of Man of Steel 2. And beyond that, the thought is that if he does sign on, he will also write it. Um, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I've said before that Matthew Vaughn is a director I really like. I've never seen a movie of his that I didn't like, but I'm not sure what kind of a fit he is for Superman. And, you know, I, he has made a, a comment here or there years ago back when he was supposedly pitching a Superman movie alongside Mark Miller to Warner Brothers. You know, he's made comments in the past that seems like he may understand that Superman cannot be like a jaded, dark, anti-hero type um, that he needs to be the light and then the fun and the hope and the joy in the, in the DC universe. So assuming he really embraces that thought, uh, I don't mind him writing it. So I, I am hoping Vaughn signs on and that he is writing it because of the people that have, you know, of, of the potential possibilities, he definitely jumps out at me as someone who like, you know what? I wouldn't initially think of that as a great idea, but he is a good filmmaker and I, anything, anything, is a step up from what we have now with fucking Zack Snyder. Um, but that wasn't all, obviously. There was a lot of DC rumors. So uh, there was also this idea, and this just goes into what I've been saying for fucking ever, that according to Warner Brothers, DC is really just Batman and friends. You know, they, they don't seem to, like, want to really go beyond the... Uh, <laughs> the bat universe here. So this interesting rumor hit the web that 2019, in order to coincide with the 80th anniversary of Batman, uh, there's going to be not one, not two, not three, but four Batman movies. That's right. There's this, you know, it's a rumor of course, but there's a, there's talk that there will obviously be the Batman. There will be, this Batgirl movie, which I'm going to get to in a second, by the way. I have a weird feeling about that. There's Nightwing and there's Gotham City Sirens. And the talk is that all four of those movies would arrive in 2019 as a sort of Batman extravaganza. Um, you know, listen, I... I just... I think they're going to beat the bat into the ground here. I really do. I already kind of pointed out that how even like the Lego Batman sort of underperformed compared to the Lego movie. I think people are going to start getting tired of Batman. I think they need to focus on making these movies just as good as they can be and not just giving us as many of them as they can fucking cram into a calendar year. Um... Listen, that said, if, if the DCEU was going great right now, then I'd be like, yeah, fuck it. Let's make 2019 all about Batman. You know, the more, the merrier. But right now, like, they're still, they, they still have to make a good movie as far as I'm concerned. 
as far as a lot of us are concerned. All right, I'm sorry if you're a DC fan out there, but listen, they they have yet to make a bona fide classic. So when they're trying to do shit like this now, I just like, can we just focus on one movie at a time? Can you give us one truly great fucking movie? Before we start talking about shit like, oh, let's have four Batman movies. And there's also talk that in general, they want to move to a four DC film slate every year. With the idea of being too big budget, too low budget. Which I guess, if you want to think of it along those lines, you know, you figure Batman will be big budget. And maybe Nightwing or Batgirl will be, you know, big budget. And then Gotham City Sirens and one of the other... Either Batgirl, Nightwing will be the low-budget ones. I just like, why are we doing this? Make a great franchise first before you decide, you know what? We're going to fucking pollute the world with more and more of these movies that, you know, uh, I just, I'm sorry. Okay. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, More rumors with regard to Batman. Uh, the Batman movie will still have Deathstroke in it, but that, you know, Joe Manganiello's Deathstroke, but that he won't be the main villain anymore. Um, you know, it it seems that Mr. Matt Reeves wants to do a larger scale Batman story that will include the whole Bat family, uh, which honestly, I'm, I'm down for that, especially if we're going to do the thing where we are going to transition from Ben Affleck's Bruce Wayne as Batman into someone else as Batman, you're going to want to play up the whole Bat family angle. And the fact that, like, you know, there's a legacy here. There's almost like that Batman corpse, you know, the the, the, the core, the, the, the whole idea of someone else can be Batman if Bruce steps down or if something happens to Bruce. So I think it all kind of works together. If you want to make it like, you know, the have the whole Bat family included... Because then it's not just all about Bruce Wayne as Batman, Bruce Wayne as Batman, Bruce Wayne as Batman. It'll help plant the seeds for the fact that Affleck is going to get the hell out of Dodge soon and there's going to be someone else putting on the cowl. Um, then there's, you know, with, with regard to Suicide Squad, you know, th- there's talk that Suicide Squad 2 no longer has Mel Gibson as its frontrunner for director. Um, right now the names that are being thrown around is like, uh, Jamie Collette, Sarah and Ruben Fleischer. And honestly, I'm totally down for Ruben Fleischer. I've said this on Twitter and I'm going to repeat it here. If you bring someone with the sensibilities of a Ruben Fleischer and what he did with Zombieland, I think he's a perfect fit for Suicide Squad. I think the tone, sorry, I think the tone of of Zombieland is perfect for a Suicide Squad movie. So I kind of hope Fleischer gets the gig. Um, I'm surprised that this rumor mentions that, you know, that, that, that a script is being written based on a pitch from Ayer, considering, listen, I love David Ayer, uh, but I don't think his Suicide Squad was a particularly good movie. And I'm surprised that Warner Brothers would kind of let him anywhere near another Suicide Squad movie. Uh, I understand he was a good soldier for them, and he's going to make Gotham City sirens and whatever. But you know, I would I would love to hear fully fresh, new, interesting blood for Suicide Squad too. Either way, uh, that you know that's the latest there on Suicide Squad. Um, then there's talk about like you know the the Flash may have a 2020 release date. Remember, at one point it was supposed to come out early 2018. Now it looks like it's going to face you know, a two-year delay. And the rumored director is Jonathan Levine. 
uh, Jonathan Levine, who did uh, The Night Before, that comedy uh, holiday movie. He also did 50-50. Uh, you know, he, he's done a few of these, like, Seth Rogen sort of, you know, offbeat comedies. So that, that once again hits the point home that Ezra Miller's Flash movie is going to be more, you know, it's going to be lighter in tone. Uh, and if you recall, the writer of King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, or whatever the fuck that movie's called, he's the one who's working on the script for The Flash. So, I don't know. We'll see what happens there. I'll believe it when I see it. Um, so, yeah. So, now, here's where I want to kind of, like, before we leave the DCEU, I want to talk about Batgirl. Because I think something's up, guys. I think something's up. We are now two weeks, two weeks removed from the supposed announcement that Joss Whedon was going to be directing a Batgirl movie. Where the fuck is the press release? Where the fuck is any sort of official announcement? No one else seems to be picking up on this, but as usual, I am. And let's see if, as usual, I end up being right. What is up with that? Listen, you have everyone from Variety to Time Magazine, to the New York fucking Times talking about this. So this wasn't just some rumor. This wasn't some Reddit shit. This wasn't just some thing. There was a legitimate report. You know, there, there was a legitimate sense that this was either a done deal or just a mere formality at this point that Joss Whedon was signing on to direct Batgirl. That's why I spent a bunch of time last week talking about it, because I'm like, oh, it's a foregone conclusion. If these legit sources are talking about it, it's got to be done. But where the fuck is the official announcement? Where is it? I'm starting to think that they got ahead of themselves a little bit. Maybe Whedon was not as close to signing on as everyone thought. Remember, Variety also once said that Matt Reeves was pretty much done in terms of signing on to do Batman, and then he ended up dropping out of the negotiations. And we know ultimately he did come back. But he dropped out like a week later after after Justin Kroll of Variety said that it's all just a done deal at this point. He fucking left, so it was not a done deal. So I'm really wondering now, you know, how is it? how can it be that an entity as huge as Warner Brothers and DC Entertainment and as and, and, and as fucking huge as Joss Whedon, neither side has made any sort of official announcement. I think something's up. I think the negotiations have stalled. I think they've managed to keep it quieter than what happened with Matt Reeves and Warner Brothers. I don't know why they're fighting. I'm going to try to, you know, sick some pit bulls into that area and see if anyone can come back to me with a piece of meat. But... There's something fucking going on there. Because there's no way the two weeks would go by if this was actually set and nobody's issued an official statement. There's not a quote from Whedon. There's not a press release from Warner Brothers. I am now becoming very skeptical that that's going to happen. And what's interesting is like it's not just a rumor that's been dispelled. or you know, If it does end up going the wayside, it's not just going to be like, oh, that was just one of those internet rumors that didn't pan out. No, 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 no. The fact that it was covered by all those big publications means that at one point, it was going to happen. So why the fuck didn't it? That will become the question if that doesn't become official. It's not going to be one of those rumors that we can just sort of, ah, I guess it just didn't pan out. Someone made some shit up somewhere. Nope. 
it'll mean that Whedon really was about to sign on and then ultimately was scared off or got cold feet and got the fuck out of there. I don't know what it is, folks, but right now, I think you should all be paying attention to that fact. Nobody else is really talking about it, but I don't think Whedon is going to be directing Batgirl anymore. And if he is, there's some sort of crazy power struggle going on behind the scenes right now. There's fucking something going on. Just like I fucking told you guys that there was something going on with Affleck and Warner Brothers, even, even though they kept saying otherwise, and then he ended up dropping out as director, and no one else wanted to believe me, and they thought I was just being an anti-DC fuckface. I'm telling you, it's happening again. Whedon was going to do it. I don't think he's going to anymore. I don't know why, but that's going to be a story, or it's got to be a story. Because what the fuck is going on there? If you're Warner Brothers and you have a guy like Joss Whedon nibbling at your hook, how do you not move heaven and earth to get that to happen? So listen, I don't know. We're going to find out. Um, aside from that, we're going to shift gears a little bit. I'm going to go over to, to what's going on with the Universal Monsters because there's been some interesting stories there. But before I do that, while we're talking about uh, Universal, I do want to talk about uh, the Fate of the Furious. I actually meant to talk about this when we were talking about box office because Fate of the Furious is now officially on the horizon. Fate of the Furious is opening up, what is it, this Friday, I think? April 14th? Uh, get this shit. Deadline is reporting that Fate of the Furious, the fucking eighth installment in this franchise, uh, could have the biggest global opening of any of the Fast and Furious movies. Now, that's a big deal for me, for yours truly, who loves box office shit, because I was one of the cynics. I was one of the cynics who thought that the main reason that Fast and Furious 7 did what it did uh, was because people were curious. You know, Paul Walker died mid-production. And, you know, people wanted to come out and people who maybe hadn't seen any of these movies before or people who hadn't seen a Fast and Furious movie in theaters in a long time, they wanted to come just to see, I wonder how they're going to handle the whole Paul Walker thing. So there was like a curiosity factor that almost had nothing to do with the movie itself. And I thought that was why it did what it did. And it had a huge, it opened to $397 million globally and ended up passing a billion fucking dollars is what it did. So I kind of expected, though, after that, like that would be the high water mark, and that for these next three, because they're planning on making eight, nine, and ten, like a closing trilogy, and they're going to stop it at ten. Um, I thought that, that these next three would just slowly shrink back down to something more reasonable, and that would be the end of it. But now, according to Deadline, this thing is tracking to open even bigger. This is a 16-year-old franchise, people. That's a big fucking deal. And if it does pull it off, that means that there really is a huge interest in this movie and in this franchise uh, that I just, you know, maybe I was underestimating before. But, um, you know, right now it's, it's the, 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 the range that they're looking at. On the low end, they're saying 375 mil. And on the high end, 440 million. So that, to me, that's a big storyline to look forward to heading into this weekend. You know, how, just how big is that opening weekend going to be? I'm very curious about that. 
uh, I think you should you you box office people out there should be also because you know these movies are they're they're not trying to be high art they're, they're fun they're young dumb and full of cum they're like you know they're just trying to be eye candy but if they're pulling in this kind of money like you got to hand it to them and right now on rotten tomatoes uh with only 24 reviews in so it's still very early it's got positive reviews it's currently at 79% on Rotten Tomatoes as of this writing. As of Tuesday afternoon, it's at 79%. Uh, 19 people liked it. Only five people didn't. So I don't know, man. Those, those of you who want to sleep on the, the fate of the Furious, who think that this franchise has jumped the shark, uh, these motherfuckers might be here to stay. <laughs> there might be more than 10 of these Fast and Furious movies when all said and done if this movie does as huge as it looks like it's going to. So I just kind of want to take a little detour. That is a universal franchise. And now, you know, so that that's a universal franchise that we already know is doing great for them. The one that we don't know about now is this, is this one that they're trying to start now with the universal monsters. So look, a couple weeks ago, they, re- they revealed the Mummy trailer and it got a lot of people talking. And, you know, I'm very curious about this monster franchise because I love the classic monsters. I love Mummy and Wolfman and Frankenstein and all that sort of shit. Um, And so people are curious and now you've got producer Chris Morgan who's also one of the writers on the the franchise who's kind of helping shape that world. He's released a couple of interesting quotes. So let's start with this one about the mummy. About sort of how the mummy is sort of starting things off for them and sort of, you know, what we can expect from the sensibility and the tones of the movie. Are they all going to be modern? Are they all going to be what? You know, so here's what he said. He said, the studio is mostly interested in just doing good films. They would like them generally to be more contemporary, I think, just to reflect a modern sensibility and a modern take on the monsters. The Mummy is one of the first modern day, for Universal anyway, mummy films. All the others are period. But there are no rules, so if there is a great period version of these that's just undeniable, then we'll absolutely fight for that and go for it. So that means that, you know, because some people are wondering, you know, we, we associate some of these characters with having a lineage that goes back 100 years or beyond. And some people were kind of surprised that The Mummy would, would be such a contemporary flick. So that's his take on that. Uh, with regard to, like, what the ratings will be, since we know that... You know, these movies are technically horror movies. Uh, are they going to go for PG-13? Are they going to go for R? Like, what are we doing for? You know, what, what, are we, what, what can we look forward to here? And he said that, you know, the, 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 the topic has come up with regard to the rating between the writers and the producers and the studio itself. And here's what he said. He said, it does come up. I don't want to say it's a different conversation, because it's not really. We've always taken the approach of writing it for the way that it's right, and then we can just, and then we can always scale up and down for the rating if that became a concern. But let's just do the best story. Just show us what the best story is, and we can deal with that later. I mean, I think especially with Logan and Deadpool, those are great examples for the R rating. They make a real case for there being flexibility in the rating more than there ever was. So again, just tonally write for the story that you want to tell, and let's deal with that later. 
So, you know, it's not very committal, the answer, but it sounds like nothing's off the table. The first priority when they're putting together one of these, you know, monster movies is to just tell, you know, come up with the right story, write the best script you can write, and then we'll figure out what rating it should be later. They're not trying to write for a PG-13. They're not trying to write for an R. Uh, you know, I, I can kind of go either way. I'm not a huge person who thinks like, oh, it has to be rated R if it's a horror movie or whatever. But, you know, I, I hope that these things have some bite to them. I hope that it's not just like softcore, total like kitty horror. And, you know, I just, I, I, I hope that there is a rated R movie in there at some point because these movies should be pretty brutal. I want to see the Wolfman fucking ripping people's throats out. All right? That's just, but maybe that's just me. Um, and then when he was talking about, in general, how they're trying to design each of these movies, you know, like how interconnected are they going to be? How much are they working at making it this one, you know, shared tapestry of, of storytelling? He said... Uh, you know, we kind of designed them all to be kind of standalone sorts of franchises that have kind of similar things between them. And as the scripts came in, then we started putting them in a, uh, well, this would be a good order. We reveal this here. So now it really comes down to, again, it's a studio decision on which film is coming out next. Just with all the films we're working on, Bride of Frankenstein, Van Helsing, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Wolf, Wolfman, Invisible Man, and on and on and on, it's a real embarrassment of riches in terms of awesome, fun characters. So in general, it looks like you know, they're just trying to, you know, they're allowing those scripts to come in, and they're trying to figure out, you know, what sort of chronological order they should come in. But it doesn't sound like they're writing these films as if they have to be as interconnected as possible. They're writing individual stories and then seeing what sort of shared common ground they have. Um, and then one thing I will say that came from his that, that that came from his quotes this week that I guess is for me is sort of a, uh, a red flag since a, a few of you were put off by the fact that The Mummy looked like a Mission Impossible movie, looked very action-adventure-oriented and not necessarily horror-oriented. Um, you know, he said that, um, you know, the films are just going to be interesting, emotional, action-y, largely global sorts of films. I think The Mummy trailer sets, sets up in a really good way kind of the tone of these films. So that means that those of us who were hoping that the uh, that the most recent mummy trailer was a bit of a departure that like in, in terms of like they were trying to market it more actiony just to get the box office dollars but it really is more of a horror flick it looks like the movie might be more of an action movie because when he's writing down those adjectives when he says interesting emotional actiony global sorts of films none of that he doesn't mention scary or creepy or horrific in any way so it looks like these movies may be more on like the action adventure sort of vein. And that is kind of a bummer. That really is kind of a bummer. But, um, you know, I, listen, I, I'm going to see the mummy movie. I'm, you know, it comes out on June 9th. I will definitely check it out. And I have high hopes for what could happen with the sort of shared universe with all of these fantastic, timeless characters. But I, I was hoping for something that was an action adventure to be perfectly honest with you. Um, 
And now I want to go to the question of the week from last week. <clears throat> now that it looks like, I mean, at the time, it looked like Joss Whedon was going to be making a Batgirl movie. I made the case for the fact that, hey, you know, it looks like there really is no such thing as studio loyalty. That it looks like any filmmaker can just make any fucking movie they want for, any, for either side of the spectrum. So with that in mind, I asked you, you know, what filmmaker from any of the franchises, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the DC Extended Universe, the X-Men Cinematic Universe, if you could pair them up with any property from one of the quote-unquote rival studios, what would you do? And here are the answers I got from you guys. So uh, Tavo Borrego said, I would, I would love to see the Russo brothers make a Suicide Squad movie. Take my money if this happens. I don't know what the hell happened there with my accent. But listen, fuck it. That's part of the fun, isn't it? Uh, so he would love to see that. Um, then there is Mr. Aron Virola. He said uh, he would love to see Wachowskis do a Daredevil movie for Marvel. He also mentioned wanting to see Chris Nolan do a Punisher movie. Uh, so let me just respond to these initial suggestions. So Russo Brothers making a Suicide Squad movie? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I respect your opinion there, Mr. Borrego, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I see that as the best fit. Uh, I mean, maybe, you know, because they do have the more comic sensibility. But I think right now I'm too much about really wanting Ruben Fleischer to get that gig. So I can't really think of anyone else I'd rather see do it. So maybe I'm a little biased there. Uh, Wachowski's doing a Daredevil movie? Uh, yeah, I guess. I don't know. I'm kind of done with the Wachowskis. I, uh, to me, they haven't made anything worthwhile in a very long time. So I, kinda don't, I can't really work up a boner over that. Then there's Chris Nolan uh, doing The Punisher. I mean, would he make a great Punisher movie? Sure. But I think he already explored a lot of the same themes that a Punisher story would be with the whole vigilante and the revenge and, you know, going into the psyche of, of what it takes for someone to go out there and do what he does. He already kind of did that with Batman, with his Dark Knight trilogy, you know? So I, I feel like that would just be sort of him retreading very similar territory. Uh, then we have Mr. Sean, Sean Coulter who went in there and he said Sam Raimi making Iron Man or Guillermo del Toro making Batman. That's interesting. I, I, I could totally see Sam Raimi pulling off a pretty decent Iron Man. Uh, and then del Toro for Batman, I mean, that would be pretty inspired. It would be more of like a, like an art house Batman, maybe one of the Elseworld tales. You know, maybe give him like, uh, like Batman year one or give him something that's a little more like stylistic and and not, you know, the, the very square-jawed traditional Batman we're used to. I could see that. Then you got Chris Lasanti, who clarified for me last week that he's not from the Bronx, not from the Boogie Down. He's a local like me. He's a Queens boy. Uh, he said, I'd say John Favreau or James Gunn working on Green Lantern, making it a Star Wars-style epic trilogy about the rise of Hal Jordan. Now, you know what's pretty funny? I'm pretty sure that when Scully and I did our, like, dream fantasy casting, our Fantasy Friday for Green Lantern for that other bullshit site a few months back, I'm pretty sure those are our two suggestions. I think he said James Gunn. I think I said John Favreau. So, Chris, I think we're all on the same page here. You might have even read that 
And maybe we left an impression on you. But either way, I agree with either of those. I would love to see John Favreau or James Gunn do a Green Lantern. Do I think it'll happen? Probably not. Because Favreau is not only a director and a, a former like part of the MCU team, but he's still in there as like a part of the production team, and he's still very much embedded, you know. And he makes the Jungle Book movies for Disney. Like he's all on the uh, on the Disney side. For him to jump to Warner Brothers and make a DC movie, is probably there's probably a snowball's chance in hell. And I also think it's unlikely for Mister Gunn, even though I think he'd be great for Green Lantern. I just think it would be too much similar territory. He's already doing his cosmic superhero, interstellar, epic stuff with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 and 2. I doubt he'd, he'd uh, go, do, go make a Green Lantern movie, even though it would probably be fucking epic. And now, as we reach towards the end of, uh, of this week's episode, let's talk a little bit about what I'm watching, what I'm doing this week. So, A, I'm still fucking waist deep in uh, Zelda, Breath of the Wild. I think I've logged like 75 hours now. It's one of those games where like I'm in no rush to finish it. You know, it's one of those things where like, yeah, I could just, you know, go and try to get the four divine beasts and go attack Ganon right now. But I don't want to. All right. So fucking get off my back about it. I want to stretch this out. I don't want it to end. Um, I, I, I just I uh, that that you know, that's taken up a lot of my fanboy time playing that game. I've also continued to marathon Masters of Sex, which I think is just a phenomenal series. If you guys have Showtime, definitely check out Masters of Sex. It's really, really good. But stuff that you guys are probably all watching, a little more on the mainstream level, you know, I saw the, uh, I'm all caught up on The Walking Dead now. I saw the season finale. And here's my thing about Walking Dead. It's like I have this weird love-hate relationship when it comes to Walking Dead. Because I, I... I agree that it's a very finely made bit of television. The writing is good. The acting is always good. Uh, there's always a fair amount of interesting twists and surprises. And it's surprisingly emotionally relevant storytelling for a zombie series. But I just, to me, it feels sort of aimless. You know, I think what, what I've been saying this for years. I feel like I wish they would go back to the idea of we're trying to find a cure. Like, I wish there was an overarching storyline where we're trying to find a cure or there's some sort of ultimate endgame. Because right now, it just seems to have just become a show about like, all right, we're going to come to this place, meet this bad guy, and try our best to survive. Next season, we're going to go to that place, meet a new villain, and try our best to survive. And it's like, you know, merely building the whole show around this idea of look at these people trying to survive. Uh, like power struggles and shit. Like to me, like uh, th that should definitely be in there. I like that stuff, but there needs to be a more overarching end game in sight. Yeah, you know, for me, there was an urgency in the first season, especially where they were trying to get to that, like the the, the center for disease control and try to find a cure or whatever. You know, I, I feel like it's missing that. So you know, I enjoyed the finale. I thought it was well done. Uh, I saw some of the twists coming, but that's okay. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I wish they would bring back, uh, a stronger sense of purpose for the overall narrative. It, it, it seems sort of aimless right now. And I think that's why the ratings are starting to come down to earth a little bit. I don't know if you guys heard this, but you know, the, the finale for this latest season of Walking Dead, you know, it's, uh, it's not as high as other previous season finales, 
you know, I think right now that they're going to have to put a little more urgency. They're going to have to inject another, you know, point the story in a particular direction, not just here's a current power struggle and our, our attempt to survive in this shitty situation. Um, what else am I watching? I'm also watching Bates Motel, which is coming near the finale that we only got two episodes left. I'm really bummed about that. I don't even know if I've mentioned Bates Motel in the past. Maybe I have. But uh, I, I think it's a really good show, which is funny because it is a little cheesy. It's definitely kind of on the cornier side of, of the stuff that I watch. Some of it's kind of like melodramatic and soap opera-y and the music, but at least they seem to sort of embrace that. Um, like, you know, like the, the, the creators seem to be sort of in on the joke, so to speak, knowing that this, you know, that there is a little bit of camp and a little bit of over-the-topness to it all. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I think Bates Motel is pretty damn solid. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if you guys saw the episode that aired last night, but man, I can't wait to see where they're going with all this stuff. Um, I can't wait to see where they're going with all this stuff. It looks really good. Freddie Highmore actually directed that episode. So I don't know if you guys pay attention to that sort of shit. But young Freddie Highmore, who plays Norman Bates, he directed the episode himself. And I thought it was pretty damn good. So good for him. Good for the series. Can't wait to see where they're going with all that. And I'm also watching Homeland, but I'm not caught up. I didn't see Sunday's episode, so I can't talk on that. But... Fucking somebody spoiled for me that something happens. Not the specifics, but that a particular type of thing is going to happen. And I'm like annoyed. But I'm going to hopefully catch that tonight. And I actually haven't been to the movies this week. It's the first, you know, the, the week before this, I caught three. And this week, I have not brought my ass to a cinema. So I, I'm not sure if I'm going to try to catch Fast and Furious this weekend. I, honestly, there's nothing really on my radar until Guardians of the Galaxy comes out next month, so I might not be making it to the movies anytime soon. But, um, yeah, that's it for me, guys. So, thank you for listening. And your question of the week is, do you think Joss Whedon is actually going to make that Batgirl movie? I'm starting to think the answer is no. What do you guys think? All right, catch you next week.